0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Anna Lavovsky, the author of Vice Patrol, Cops, Courts, and the Struggle Over Urban Gay Life Before Stonewall. Anna is also an assistant professor at Harvard Law. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to discuss the book. So first off, how did you come to research this book, this time period, and what got you interested in the topic? So I I came to graduate
1: school knowing that I wanted to work uh, in the history of sexuality. Uh, Those were really uh, some of the histories that had made me want to to be a historian, had really inspired me to do graduate work. Uh, And the way I came on the topic of anti-gay policing in particular was really, uh, in some ways, an incident of of some of the really rare documents we have uh, in the Harvard Library system. I was working on an unrelated term paper, and I stumbled on these uh, somewhat rare police manuals from the 1930s and 1940s. And these were police manuals that looked uh, in in key part at the work of anti-gay enforcement. And I was just so struck by how rich these materials were and the way that they really taught police officers to visualize the gay body as something that revealed its criminality visually, simply uh, through, through visual inspection. Once I found these materials, I knew that I wanted to work with them. And you know, most histories of sexuality are very much ground up stories of resistance and community building. They're, they're always set against the shadow state surveillance, uh, but they're uh, really focused primarily uh, on resistance to the state. And I found myself, particularly in light of these manuals, interested in, in the operations of anti-gay regulation itself, how the police in particular thought about it and shaped gay life. So the project is really an attempt to reconstruct the realities of of anti-gay policing in the mid-20th century, uh, looking at the the internal operations of the legal system, uh, including the really often surprising controversies uh, that this form of enforcement inspired among different agents of the law.
0: And there are two prongs I want to get to in what you just said. One is the existence of these manuals that not only were saying you can absolutely identify a homosexual by these characteristics, and then you're training these decoy police officers to enter into social scenarios uh, to, to catch gay people by acting as though they were gay, or however the policemen interpreted that to be. So that's, that's fascinating in and of itself, like you said. But also, there was not one united state force against homosexuals during this time period, uh, you go into a lot of nuance. And this actually reminded me of an earlier interview that I have done, I think it was in 2018, about obscenity laws. And while there were certainly forces trying to seize material and say that it was obscene, there was a lot of pushback in the legal community when it came to judges and attorneys about how appropriate it was to try and censor this material. And you see something sort of similar in your book. Could you talk about that first, and then we'll get back to the the decoys and the, the interesting ways that these vice patrols went about attempting to entrap people?
1: Absolutely. I think that one of the, the key arguments in the book has to do with what I see as disaggregating the law's interactions with police groups like gay men in the mid-20th century, as I've just mentioned, histories of gay life, tend to be written against the shadow of police regulation. And so policing tends to hover in the background of all of these stories, but it's typically portrayed as a somewhat monolithic project of repression, something that commands the shared commitment of police officers, prosecutors, and judges. And in fact, I, I argue that the project of anti-gay policing was the site of profound contestation and disagreement within the criminal justice system uh, reflecting a, a variety of political institutional and pragmatic pressures and i you know one of the reasons that the book goes into such detail of, about these debates is it's it's really uh, an argument that i received some pushback on when i was uh, first preparing the project uh, i remember when i first submitted the manuscript to the press and this was still, I and mean, it was a large main dissertation form, really one of the only things that the two readers who reviewed the project agreed on was their skepticism that judges might have possibly pushed back uh, against the vice squad's anti-gay patrols. The this assumption was this was a time of such pervasive anti-gay sentiment. Why would anyone really have tried to check the excesses of the vice squad? Uh, and in fact... And uh, to
0: be clear, you know, you're know, you not saying that the judges were you know, uniformly pro-gay rights, And supportive of the people who came before them and their lifestyle choices, necessarily. It it was something much more interesting and nuanced.
1: Absolutely. And that's exactly right. That, in fact, judges frequently pushed back. But it's not necessarily because they were especially progressive or because they were sympathetic to the defendants who came before them. Sometimes that was the case. Uh, The 1950s were a time of of liberalizing attitudes towards sexual difference, particularly among some higher educated circles, including judges. And and I do argue throughout the book that that part of what shaped judges' perspectives on on these crimes was the demographic of the defendants involved, that these campaigns, these police campaigns, really unusually confronted judges with middle class, white, so-called respectable defendants a lot of judges truly sympathized with, uh, but even setting aside any sympathy for for either sexual difference or particularly gay defendants, judges had a variety of very practical and pragmatic institutional reasons to push back uh, on these operations. Many just thought they were a waste of police resources as compared to more serious crimes. Many judges, frankly, resented the, the burden on their own dockets. They saw these as, as relatively petty crimes. And as with other petty moral offenses, they just didn't want to waste their own time constantly dealing with a stream of these charges. And something that, that really surprised me, and the research as well, was, was the role of medicalization. So the medicalization of homosexuality is, is commonly and very understandably remembered as a, a deeply corrosive development uh, in. The history of gay life in the United States. But uh, in many ways, in the daily operations of the courts, the medicalization of gay life actually mitigated the bite of the law.
0: And can we define that for listeners? What is medicalization? So the medicalization
1: of of same-sex desire in the 1950s essentially reflected the growing authority of psychiatrists and psychologists, particularly psychiatrists, as experts who claimed homosexuality as the symptom essentially of, of some kind of mental maladjustment. Uh, so the suggestion was that homosexuality was a disease that could either be cured or at least treated and confined through medical ministrations. And of course, as you can imagine, uh, this had uh, really devastating consequences for a lot of individual gay men and women. It contributed to, uh, to A lot of self-hatred among individuals who grew up being told that their desires and their relationships were essentially an illness. It also fueled the regulation of gay life. Uh, One thing that I was really struck by is that police officers themselves often invoked uh, this medical theory of homosexuality to defend their anti-gay campaigns to say that it made sense to try to eliminate these pockets of urban life because these were seen essentially as an illness, a disease, so this was a really a, a deeply corrosive and really devastating shadow that, that hung over gay life. Within the institution of the courts, and this certainly doesn't take away the, the destruction and, and the, the harm suffered by individuals because of the medical model outside of court, uh, within the courts, the, the influence of the medical model was uh, sometimes a little bit surprising. So in the most general terms, the medicalization of homosexuality convinced many judges that Essentially, same-sex practices weren't uh, a penological concern. This was really a medical concern, and therefore courts and certainly jails weren't the right solution. But in uh, in the case of of particular vice-squad methods, such as entrapment methods, the medicalization of homosexuality in particular pushed judges to really resist and disdain these practices uh, by convincing judges that plainclothes officers, for example didn't just capture gay men, but actually essentially bred homosexuality by tempting so-called normal or straight men to succumb to these latent desires that they might never have given into were it not for the temptations of the police. And so uh, in this surprising way, uh, the medicalization of homosexuality and specifically the input of often state-affiliated psychiatrists who came to judges and specifically asked them, to dismiss entrapment cases. This really did soften individual defendants' experience of the law.
0: And I'd really love to get into these methods, but just so that my listeners are clear, the time period that you really delve into is the 1930s through the 1960s. You, of course, make mention of times before that, but this is your focus. It was interesting to me the way a lot of this enforcement sprung up from the end of prohibition. And the the first part of your book is actually looking not at criminal citations so much as civil ones. Could you talk a little bit about the 1930s and why they spawned this desire to enforce these anti-homosexual laws?
1: Absolutely. So there were a, a number of factors that, that really converged around uh, the end of the 1930s. And some new factors that arose in the coming decades as well that made the mid-century what I think of as really something of a regulatory bubble, where the policing and the surveillance of gay life occupied particular attention uh, in urban police departments. And you mentioned the first chapters look at, at exactly civil charges and disciplinary proceedings against gay-friendly bars. One key effect of, of prohibition uh, is that it essentially, uh, by legalizing the sale of alcohol, prohibition also sent agents of the state and state regulators into these spaces that previously had thrived, to the extent they thrived, previously underground, outside the eye of the state. And so with the legalization of alcohol came a spate regulations about how precisely bars and restaurants serving alcohol ought to be run, including uh, in many states some variant of essentially disorderly conduct provision uh, requirement that bars operate their, their uh, premises in a manner that caused no public disorder. However, the state liquor boards might have defined that term. And many state liquor boards uh, essentially define disorderly conduct to include visible or conspicuous presence of gay or, or lesbian patrons. So that's why I really began in the 1930s and, and with the example of bars. But in addition to, to prohibition, you know, there were a number of factors that really led to this acceleration in anti-gay policing, one factor, maybe more of a historical uh, contingency, uh, was this uh, rash of public attention to, to sex crimes. Uh, it began, began in the late 1930s. It then reemerged after World War II in, in the late 1940s and early 1950s. But this is something that's uh, commonly referred to as the, the sexual psychopath scare, the sexual psychopath panic. Essentially, a series of high-profile cases about violent sex crimes, typically ironically involving uh, male suspects victimizing young girls, gave rise to a certain uh, public fervor around sexual difference as something uh, that was really potentially dangerous. And this led police officers to spend more of their time on enforcing what might be uh, classified broadly as sex-related crimes, and the the most straightforward (laughs) Uh, statutes, that targeted sex-related crimes at the time were frequently uh, statutes targeting behavior by nonviolent adult gay men. And uh, the other factor that that I uh, emphasize in the book that I think perhaps has been emphasized less frequently previously was also the shifting organization of police departments themselves in these years. Uh, The mid-century witnessed the Perhaps the heyday uh, of something that's remembered as the police professionalization movement and police professionalization, among uh, its other ambitions, tried to streamline and make more efficient the, the internal operations of policing, in key part by dividing police work into specialized units. Among those specialized units were vice squads. Uh, They were typically uh, responsible either for morals enforcement generally or for sex-related enforcement in particular. Uh, And one argument that I make is that in key part, it really is the case that the institutional pressures of having a specialized vice squad that was required to essentially defend its existence and demonstrate its efficiency through arrest rates really pushed police officers to take more seriously the work of anti-gay enforcement, uh, where those outside the vice squad might have seen this uh, as more petty and unimportant work.
0: And I do have to say, just as a reader, hearing about some of the missions that these vice patrols went on, spying in public bathrooms and you know, going so far as to expose their genitals in public just to see if The the man that they're exposing their genitals to is up for some sex. It it just, all of it does seem wackadoo from the outside (laughs) as a reader in the 21st century. But what I found interesting when you talk about the professionalism of police was also that the police on these vice squads in trying to portray themselves as, no, no, we're professionals, we're not the kinds of, uh, you know, crooked cops who would be bought off. We are experts, experts in this field, experts in how to spot someone who is gender nonconforming or homosexual in some way. And the way that, ironically, this ended up being used in some of the cases against the bars who were defending themselves from these liquor boards saying you're serving gay clientele and you should know that your clientele is gay. And then the bar owners bring in the cops and say, oh no, how could we possibly as just ordinary people be able to spot gay people? You know, you need professionals like these police officers. And that was, that was an interesting dichotomy there. Is is there anything else you could, you could talk about with that and the way that police were, you know, used as quote-unquote, expert witnesses on what constitutes a a homosexual person?
1: Absolutely. So police expertise is is a topic that I am really interested in, and I've written about this in in a non-historical, or at least uh, perhaps a more contemporary uh, context as well. In in key part that I see this book as about uh, constructions of knowledge about gay life generally, but particularly constructions uh, of police knowledge and the politics of police knowledge, you know, the typical story that's told and that I myself have told about police expertise is that police expertise is often invoked essentially as a trump card in court. It's a way to get judicial deference by insisting that the police know more about a particular arena of enforcement uh, and therefore we should trust them when they say an arrest was justified or that criminal activity was actually ongoing, even where a layperson might not recognize that type of criminal activity. And one thing that's interesting about the example of anti-gay policing is that this, uh, this story is really inverted in many of the cases that I look at. So You mentioned uh, the, the role of police knowledge in the liquor board's proceedings. The key to these liquor regulations is that they don't typically punish serving gay customers. They punish knowingly serving gay customers. Uh, And so the liquor boards have to establish not just that they actually found gay customers in the bar, but that the bartenders or the managers or the owners knew that those customers were gay. Uh, And so this gives rise to this really rich debate about how much can you assume an average person living in an urban American city in the 1930s or 40s or 50s knows about gay life and about the signs of gay life? How much can you assume that an average American can recognize essentially a gay person on site and one really innovative defense that bar owners raise is to essentially to, to, to lean into the suggestion of police expertise and to say, as police officers themselves commonly claim, they're experts about criminalized communities. So just because a police officer or a liquor investigator could walk into our bar and say, definitively that they recognized a group of gay customers doesn't mean that a bartender, a a layperson, uh, was similarly able to recognize uh, these individuals. Because this, this site of enforcement rests on the assumption that the typical person can, in fact, recognize gay life, you see police officers and prosecutors stepping away from this rhetoric of police expertise and really denying the importance of police expertise. Police officers uh, and prosecutors who are representing the state in these proceedings commonly say, no, no expertise is necessary. Uh, There's this great uh, quotation from a New York case where the the liquor board's prosecuting attorney says, you don't need to be an expert to recognize homosexual. And and so this is, it's a great example essentially of of the the contingency of the politics of, of police expertise in litigation that this is this phenomenon or this rhetoric that, that we typically see as contributing to the authority of the state legal proceedings might, depending on the nature of the precise statute at play, actually harm the interests of the state.
0: One of the elements of the book that I really hadn't known about prior to reading Vice Patrol was that this crackdown followed a period of time where there was something called, and, and I apologize for both this language and the language that we're going to use throughout the podcast, because we can't be as precise with our language as we would be talking about communities now when we're talking about people in the past We were, we don't know how they would have identified were they living today. But this was called the Pansy Craze. Could you talk a little bit about the Pansy Craze, how it raised the profile of Gay individuals, gay life in society, prior to this crackdown.
1: Exactly as you say, there's a, a certain historical term that's applied to this period. It was used both by it was it was certainly used uh, in the press to, to refer to this phenomenon at the time. Starting in the late 1920s through really uh, the the, the mid 30s, popular culture in American cities featured something that is remembered as the pansy craze, which is essentially a moment where Popular night, uh, nightclubs or cabarets attracted audiences through the promise uh, of so-called pansy entertainers. Uh, these were entertainers who were self-consciously gender bending, uh, who, who would often not explicitly but implicitly imply some, some form of, of sexual difference or was seen at the time as sexual deviance. And this is a phenomenon that, you know, I, I certainly can't claim credit for in my book, uh, George Chauncey's classic, Gay New York, goes uh, in, in deep in, in, into, into this history as does uh, Chad heaps slumming. So the, the the typical story that's told about the pansy craze is that certainly this was not uh, an uncomplicated phenomenon. Uh, in many ways, it was socially conservative, one argument that historians uh, have made, including the two I've just mentioned, have made about it is that that the appeal of these types of gender bending, implicitly queer entertainments for many straight audiences was essentially an opportunity for those straight audiences to feel superior in their own natural masculinity or femininity or superior uh, in, in their own class status as compared to to the, to the people they were watching. There's something deeply exploitative, of course, about these entertainment venues essentially introducing gay bodies to the American public as essentially objects of consumption, objects of entertainment. But in many ways, the Pansy Craze is also remembered uh, as a a convertibly liberal phenomenon. At a a time when mainstream culture typically didn't acknowledge the possibility of homosexuality at all, certainly uh, not through the context of of, of mainstream urban life, the the Pansy Craze was this uh, unique moment in time when essentially the, the press and, and, and the public seemed uh, to engage in, in sometimes genuine curiosity and openness to this pocket of life that was typically ignored. And the, the argument that I make is precisely because of the Liquor Board's reliance on presumptions about popular knowledge about gay life, in order to bring disciplinary proceedings against gay bars, it was actually the pansy craze and the popularity of these entertainments that introduced many Americans to at least one stereotypical image of gay life. It was precisely uh, these entertainments that fueled the state's campaigns against gay bars and gay-friendly bars in the years following the repeal of prohibition. Because when liquor boards were forced to argue that any bartender, any bar owner, uh, in New York or in New Jersey could naturally have recognized their customers as gay, they often referred back to, to both very literally the entertainments of the pansy craze and the stereotypes that were promulgated by that craze. Uh, And they would say, essentially, in the light of the last several years of public discourse, we can assume that any American would be sufficiently familiar with these stereotypes, with these visual codes, to know that they connote homosexuality, uh, which is not at all an obvious inference that one could have made, certainly in the 1920s.
0: Well, and what's interesting, too, of course, culture evolves, cultural codes, visual language, behavioral norms, they all evolve. But just to describe what someone might have thought if they had lived through the Pansy Craze, if they'd gone to some of these entertainments, what some of these stereotypes were, one of the ones that surprised me was, oh, they were wearing a red tie. Red tie, that's
1: right. Red tie. tie.
0: Obviously, you should have known your customer was gay. He was wearing a red tie. Um, And I'm like, okay, that's a new one. I, I didn't know about that one. I guess in my head, as I was reading about the Pansy Craze, what came to mind was the movie Victor Victoria. Is that about what the style was? You know, someone in perhaps a very sophisticated tuxedo, very well groomed, but maybe also wearing lipstick. You know, what, what were the visual signals back then that we were being counted upon as the American public to immediately spot and say, oh, there, I see one. Right. So, so what's what's
1: interesting about both the stereotypes that were promulgated by the Pansy Craze and the, the, um, the assumptions that the, the liquor boards essentially baked into their proceedings is they really varied. So some of them were very broad, blunt stereotypes of effeminacy. So these would be codes like men wearing lipstick or wearing perfume uh, or eyeshadow or, or you know certain common standbys like the limp wrist or the, the swishing hips. Um, so some of these were, you know, were these very, very general stereotypes of femininity, but some of them were much more specific. Uh, and the key is, you know, these specific uh, codes were, in fact, codes that were used by by many queer men to signal their identities to kindred spirits, essentially. So this would be something like like the red tie. Particularly as gay culture evolved uh, over the course of the 1940s and the 1950s, the Liquor Board's evidence also evolved uh, to increasingly subtle uh, and perhaps surprising ostensible telltale signs uh, of gayness, of so this included, for example.
0: He was wearing loafers and a sweater. Right, loafers. So it's the type of loafers,
1: <laughs> sweaters, sports shirts, short jackets, <laughs> polo shirts. Uh, and these are, you know, this is the type of clothing, when I first began Doing this research, I was completely befuddled by it because I thought, well, what else were men wearing in the 1960s? And they're just essentially describing <laughs> this is essentially their Right, it's collegiate. It's collegiate. It's, it's somewhat high it's middle class, middle class uh, and upper class clothing. But at a certain point, both in the, the records of these of these uh, liquor proceedings and also in the writings of sociologists studying gay culture and in the writings of, of gay men themselves, uh, it did emerge that these seemingly nondescript styles were, in fact, codes used by gay men to communicate with each other, and they were chosen precisely because they were nondescript. In fact, in the 1960s, when the the popular media starts discovering, essentially, uh, as it sees it, gay life, a lot of journalists begin by remarking by how surprised they are to enter gay bars, uh, because everyone there, they say, essentially looks like models in in an ad for collegiate clothing, rather than whatever it is that they were expecting. I I guess the the primary point is that the, the liquor boards go to forms of go-to signals were really pliable and flexible, and on, on the one hand, did often accurately reflect signals that were used within the gay community, but also, of course, empowered these bars, these authorities to essentially bring charges to a variety of, of establishments that seemed to, to deviate in, in any way, shape, or form from what the Wicker Board saw as public order, or saw as the proper way for men or women to act in public.
0: And you just said women. We've been talking a lot about men this episode, and there's a reason for that. But let's talk about how this impacted women, bisexual women, lesbian women, transgender women. What were the enforcements being used against women as opposed to, to men? Why are we co- focusing mostly on men?
1: Right. So it's, it's, you know, it's absolutely the case that gay women did not escape uh, the shadow of, of the police. The book does primarily um, focus on men because the, the the particular tactics that I look at as my case studies, uh, did for the most part focus uh, on on gay men. So in terms of uh, undercover entrapment, uh, there was essentially negligible in in the period that I looked at in the cities that I looked at. There was really a negligible evidence of undercover officers being sent out to to entrap gay women for a number of reasons. One is that just based on broader limitations on single women or women unaccompanied by men socializing in public, a lot of lesbian life and socializing occurred in more private settings, uh, in homes and in living rooms rather than in bars or in parks. It's also the case that police departments saw the work of entrapment as as too degrading for female officers. There weren't all that many female officers to begin with uh, in many police departments at this time. And they just thought that essentially uh, the work of entrapment was inappropriate for the for the fair sex. Uh, same with clandestine surveillance in public bathrooms uh, for a, a variety uh, of reasons. It, it is the case that that public bathrooms uh, were a, a site of sociality and sexuality for for men more than women in these years. But the uh, liquor, the charges against gay and lesbian friendly bars did often capture both bars that served men and women equally, and bars that that really catered specifically uh, to a lesbian uh, clientele. And in New Jersey in particular, where uh, the Liquor Board prided itself on on its very aggressive anti-gay campaigns, I know I have evidence of just dozens and dozens of cases against uh, lesbian bars.
0: So let's get to the entrapment part of this, or the the decoy part of the Vice Patrol. This is something that reading it especially you you include in part of it uh, there's a transcript of two men speaking in vague vagueness and and codes no one wants to come straight out and say would you like to go home with me or if you do you know describe exactly why this person would want to go home with you and it just especially as you know this is Pride Month for many places. And you're just thinking about how corrosive this would be to never have any sort of assurance that the person you're talking with is actually someone who wants to be there or is someone who is attempting to entrap you and arrest you. And this could be someone that you've already brought home. This could be someone that you're speaking to at a bar, you know, someone in a restroom in a park. You never know whether or not this person who seems to be friendly to you is actually trying to arrest you. So could you talk about what was behind this style of policing? It seems like it was very well staffed. You have a judge in one instance talking about how his city has 28 vice cops doing this work and only 22 focusing on homicides. So could you talk a little bit about how this came to be so prevalent and what you see as its impact to the gay community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this uh Klingos enticement becomes a particularly popular, perhaps the preeminent tool of the Vice Squad following World War II. Uh, and the police uh, police essentially see this as, as an especially efficient tactic where uniformed uh, patrols might help Disperse what police officers recognize as cruising grounds, or, or where clandestine surveillance might lead to some felony arrests. Essentially, sending out a plainclothes officer who's able to, to proactively entice uh, and solicit invitations uh, from suspected gay men. This, 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 uh, the police find uh, is really an efficient way to get arrests. Uh, frankly speaking, and the thing that that's most striking to me about this evidence is how much effort police departments put into plain entrapment not only in the sense of, of how much how many uh, officers they assigned to this work uh, and one thing to, to keep in mind there is that because particular officers became recognized after a certain period departments would have to cycle through different officers or sometimes share officers across offices across uh, districts uh, or departments but, but also in, in terms of the internal training, And attention and effort that that went to teaching officers how to infiltrate gay life, so particularly.
0: And you spoke to one of these instructors, didn't you?
1: So I did. So one of the most, um, and you know, I'm I'm so grateful for this source. Obviously, we we disagree on many things, but I'm so grateful that that he took the time uh, to speak extensively with me. I was able to um, get in contact with a, not, not an officer who wasn't just a decoy in the LAPD, but who was actually a vice instructor who, who taught other decoys. And speaking with him was really incredibly instructive. Um, and one of the things that was most instructive about it was what struck me as, as a certain uh, cognitive dissonance in the way that he and the other documents, internal police documents I found, talked about anti-gay policing, where on the one hand, police officers went to such great lengths to learn how to entice gay men, precisely because it wasn't that easy, precisely because gay men understandably weren't walking up to strangers and soliciting them. They were they were really relying on these very subtle cultural codes to make sure that they were speaking with someone who was interested in them and who, who had the same objectives in mind. But at the same time as vice officers threw themselves in, into mastering this, this very insular, very coded uh, cultural language, they also justify their work by essentially insisting that gay men are predatory and indiscriminate and are going to walk up to anyone uh, and arrest them. And, And that it's because of that predatory nature that it's so important for vice officers to dedicate their time to infiltrating the gay world. So it's this fascinating game that vice officers played, where they essentially tried to convince themselves of the predatory nature of daily gay life in order to justify the time that that they were taking to learn its codes and and to, to learn to, to trick these men into actually making solicitations where they, they really would have been far too wary to, to approach them straight out.
0: And the other section I'd love to get to in your book is about the actual surveillance, the peeping. This is super creepy. Could you talk a little bit about this and how courts reacted to evidence gathered this way?
1: All right. So uh, the final case study they look at in the book is clandestine surveillance of public bathrooms. So this is uh, very literally the practice of police officers uh, essentially carving peepholes and, and similar observation stations and just watching the activities in bathrooms suspected to be cruising grounds. This form of enforcement is extremely unpopular in the vice squad, understandably, because both uh, because of the, the unpleasantness as, as, off, as many officers experience of, of actually uh, watching these sex acts, but also because it, it requires them to spend uh, their time really watching all of the activities that are going on in public bathrooms, not, not precisely how they imagine spending their time uh, when many joined the police. And there, again, there is a really um, remarkable range of innovation and effort that goes into these Observation sites, some are extremely underhanded and clever. They involve fake air vents where cameras are, are, are covered by, by mesh netting to look like uh, essentially regular fixtures uh, in the public bathroom. There's one infamous case in Mansfield, Ohio, where uh, the police essentially create an observation station in, in a janitorial closet. That, that looks into the men's bathroom uh, and uh, they, an officer with a camera stands behind a one-way mirror and films uh, all of the men who, who, who come into this bathroom. Uh, and my, my favorite detail is that the 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 way the observation station is set, set up is uh, that the camera is placed in what used to be a paper towel dispenser. And because the paper towel dispenser could no longer hold a generous amount of paper towels, the police officer is, is also, armed with essentially a store of paper towels. And as men come in, he keeps refilling the very bottom uh, of this dispenser beneath his camera so that no one realizes that that it's actually now primarily an an observation post for the police. But the courts respond really uh, in rather diverse ways to this work. So it's understandably these types of extremely intrusive tactics raise concerns about violations of privacy. So this is uh, occurring primarily before the Supreme Court in cats rewrites the Fourth Amendment's protections around reasonable expectations of privacy. But in practice, some lower courts are already relying on this uh, similar framework that essentially a, a Fourth Amendment search requiring a warrant occurs uh, whenever the police invade on what courts see as essentially privacy expectations. So uh, defendants uh, often aided by legal organizations like certain chapters of the ACLU, challenge these these observation posts under the Fourth Amendment. uh, And courts really vary in how they respond. Some judges do essentially say that any observation of public bathrooms, given the very delicate nature of that space, violates the Fourth Amendment. Some courts swing in the opposite direction and say that even in an enclosed stall where no Passerby could possibly have been able to see inside. Even there, the because uh, this is largely a public space, the police are are essentially allowed to to use any clandestine or surreptitious modes of enforcement. And the the key difference, I think, between the judges who reach these different outcomes is, is how they see gay life. In commonly indicted in the opinions, but also uh, based on statements they make. Earlier in the proceedings for trial judges in particular, the courts who find that these tactics violate the Constitution tend to essentially see gay life as a harmless practice, uh, and the judges who who uphold these practices tend to buy into the police's rhetoric of gay life as predatory, as exhibitionistic. So it's, it's a good example, essentially, of how shifting understandings of gay life in these years directly translate to shape gay men's legal rights in court.
0: So you have written this book, Vice Patrol, Cops, Courts, and the Struggle Over Urban Gay Life Before Stonewall. And I do think that you bring to light some real complexity here. What do you hope your next project will focus on? And what do you hope readers take away from Vice Patrol? So I, you know, I really see the book as a case study
1: of the hidden operations of law enforcement against a marginalized social group. And so I, I like to think that it has a variety of broader applications and implications for, for historians uh, and those engaged in, in public debates about policing today. So most basically, I think the story really exemplifies the remarkable flexibility and discretion of, of lower level legal actors in processing these types of petty cases and criminal cases generally. Uh, And the range of of unique institutional pressures that shape how trial judges, in particular, might perceive controversial police campaigns. I think not just in histories of sexuality, but sometimes also in legal scholarship, there's a tendency to discuss judicial views of the police by looking at the Supreme Court or or at published appellate opinions. Uh, And and I hope uh, this book suggests the importance of, of paying more attention to lower level actors. Second, I think the book really has lessons about how. Legal systems treat marginalized groups, groups that are subject to regulation but aren't always necessarily well understood by those doing the the regulating. I think uh, a key argument in this book is how, in many ways, the vice squad's most controversial tactics survive legal challenge due to the difference in how police officers and how judges understand gay life, where police officers develop certain unique insights into gay culture that, that really enable them to infiltrate gay life, to, to solicit sexual advances uh, among, among gay men, um, to essentially decide how to implement clandestine surveillance posts, for example. But then when they come to court, police officers don't actually share their insider knowledge into into gay life, they often let judges rely on their more outdated and simplistic stereotypes of gay life uh, as, again, frequently predatory, frequently unorganized, frequently indiscriminate, rather than uh, this really uh, insular and and encoded and sophisticated urban culture. Um, And I think that that insight about how continuing pockets of ignorance in the legal system might shape judicial reasoning uh, and might obstruct potential legal checks on police power is an insight that that I imagine applies to other forms of enforcement as well.
0: So just to make sure that I'm understanding this from having read the book and, and spoken to you, there could be instances where the police knowingly used dozens of specialized cues that they know in the gay community would be expressing, hey, I want to do this. I would like to go back to your house. I would like to engage in X, Y, Z. Oh, I'm actually going to flash my genitals at you. But when they are brought to court, they may not go into those details and instead allow the judge to think of the person who was arrested as someone who just came up out of the blue to this police officer and accosted him.
1: Exactly. So we, we talked at the beginning about how judges in particular take issue with police entrapment tactics. Uh, and for that reason, in the 1950s and 1960s, as police officers are, are really mastering gay cruising culture in order to blend into these these cruising sites and in order to, to gain the trust of, of wary gay men, these same police officers are often coming into court and saying exactly as you said, saying that, that they essentially did nothing to contribute to the defendant's conduct, that they simply, they walked into a gay bar and they sat down and the next thing they knew, someone had come up and, and solicited them. While in fact, someone who was familiar with gay culture might recognize that the way they came into the bar, the way they sat down, the way they looked around, these police officers had actually really engaged essentially in a cultural game that was tantamount to its own invitation for a sexual solicitation. So this that's you know that's one example. Uh, with the clandestine surveillance context as well, I mentioned that police officers really, really despised this work. The reason they had to engage in it is because they knew that the cruisers in public bathrooms had sufficiently robust defense mechanisms to guard against passers-by walking in on them, that it was incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for undercover officers, even undercover officers who were assigned to suspected cruising sites, to walk in on two men in a sexual act. And so it it was the stealth of this activity that necessitated clandestine surveillance tactics. But again, when they came to court to defend these tactics, they would portray gay cruising as exhibitionistic and indiscriminate and careless and allow judges to rely on this assumption that anyone walking into the public bathroom might have come face to face with this criminal activity uh, in order to uphold the police's tactics. So there are uh, really multiple examples in the book where it is these, these gaps between how police officers understand gay culture and how judges understand gay culture that contributes to the continuing vitality uh, of these campaigns.
0: And so, Anna, what's next for you? You've finished Vice Patrol. It's never easy to adapt a dissertation to a book. Uh, so what do you think you'll work on next?
1: So I'm I'm currently working on a number of, of law review articles, essentially, that spring very loosely from the themes in the book, and these often have to do with themes about police expertise and the politics of expertise. Uh, So I have one uh, piece forthcoming that tries to reimagine the role of police expertise in court, uh, looking at a broader swath of examples where claims of investigative expertise actually undermine the authority of police officers at trial. And I argue there that although in in a technocratic legal culture, we often assume that expertise must be a professional virtue, courts should really see expertise as a professional technology, uh, just like more familiar police technologies like thermal imaging or GPS tracking devices. Uh, This is something that uh, expands police power in the field and so might require greater judicial oversight rather than greater deference. And I'm also working on on a project about the relationship between police professionalization and judicial scrutiny of the police, uh, essentially looking at the importance of accounting for how police reform not only shapes or fails to, to, to shape the reality of police practices on the ground, but also how it impacts the possibilities of legal accountability for the police in court. And of course, I'm starting to think about uh, another book project. Uh, it's still uh, all very speculative, but it'll likely be another 20th century history, and again, looking at, at questions of state regulation. Um, but hopefully, with with a smaller case study this time
0: than <laughs> trying to do national hey, history. Uh, with, yes national history spanning 40 years. Yeah. Well, Anna, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your book, Vice Patrol, Cops, Courts, and the Struggle Over Urban Gay Life Before Stonewall. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.